Jake Al, do you have intros today? No, I don't have time for intros. Oh, come on. All right, fine. He started as a nerd with no followers on Twitter. Now he's a nerd that gets recognized when leaving the shitter. He turned water into wine. He just wants to please us. Now he's a mixture of Kermit the Frog and a science nerd Jesus. He's the man with the stands, the queen of quinoa, the sultan of science, the prince of Prozac, the lord of Lexapro. He gets stops for selfies all over town. My producer fee gave him a mental breakdown. The Zultan of Zoloff, Mr. David Freeberg. It's true. It did give me a breakdown. It's it did, true. but you're over it now. You just name dropped three SSRIs in that intro. It's incredible. Well, I talked to his I talked to his psychiatrist. He said he's working on the cocktail. Yeah, save some for me. <laughs> oh, oh, you? Speaking of you, he's got very quick wit and impeccable grammar. Known for building beautiful products that don't work. Oh my god. Like Colin and Yammer. He used to invest in SaaS quite a lot. Now he's fighting a brigade of Ukraine bots. He's spending so much time in his bunker, it's starting to get smelly. We see him only three times a week, all in Tucker and Megan Kelly. He'd invest in your startup if you had the knack, but right now he needs that cash for his GOP super PAC. The world's biggest asshole, the rain man himself, Mr. David Sachs. Sasshole. <laughs> that's that's Sass. a repeat joke. That's not... I know, but it, it kills every time, so I'm going to keep repeating it until you stop laughing. <laughs> his wardrobe costs so much, he can't get into a scuffle. He bought all his friends with his white truffles. He scaled Facebook to a billy. <laughs> that wine collection, it's just fucking silly. He's on the world tour meeting with princes and kings. Is he talking luxury sweaters or maybe bigger things? The dictator himself, Chamath Pali Hapatia. Wow, that was really nice, actually. Well, I mean, I appreciate yeah, you. Kind of, you. You were obviously trying to get invited to dinner tonight. I'm trying to get off the alternate Alternate slide. list. He's trying to get off the alternate. That, the email was harsh. Nine was alternate. I, that, you were trolling <laughs> me. I know I have a seat. As for me, I'm the world's greatest moderator who can't take a note. Compared to these guys, I'm just a millionaire who's broke. The all-in summit almost killed us. But we came back from death's door. I knew we peaked when Freeberg took over the dance floor. We love the fans, but we love each other more. Thanks for the first 100, fellas. Here's to 100 more. Really good. Wow. That's really, really good. Look at you touching Surprisingly, a Surprisingly, you <laughs> came prepared today. <laughs> first time. He fi after 100 episodes, he finally figured out he has to prepare. So That good. was the note. Just prepare. Just do your job. <laughs> Just do, do your job. job. Do your job. Do your job. Do your unremunerated job. Yeah. Do your job. Speaking <laughs> of unremunerated, we heard that somebody's <laughs> grifting off the pod. Oh, yeah. So good point. What we heard, Sachs, is that you got a big care package from Montclair. Yeah, that's true. What? What I think we're all going to declare today is that we all want to wet our beak. And if Montclair sends each of us a care package, we will all wear Montclair gear at episode 101. Montclair's my brand. Go, go yeah. your own brand. Yeah, we decided here, to... Jamas got Laura Piano. I got Montclair. You go get like, you know, Izod or something. I don't know. Izod. Izod. <laughs> Actually, I got Izod too. You have to do. Uh, I get, have Uniqlo. I got Uniqlo. We got Gap Kids for J. Cal. Sex, <laughs> you didn't. You didn't declare your Montclair gift package by the no, way. No, I did. That, that so, was the so discovery right. we made this weekend. So I yeah. want to thank. I want to thank the folks at. There's a company called. And they sent me this. Uh, gift, actually, this hoodie, this Montclair hoodie, which I never Wait, seen well, before. Wait, what is this plug? You. They yeah. send you a hoodie for $1,200 and they get and a 50,000 ad slot? There were several other things that I'll bring you guys each a shirt from Montclair. Oh, we get the t-shirt? Sure. Yeah, shirt. shirt? Yeah. You got as we're speaking, five. these guys are getting hundreds of thousands of dollars wow, of revenue. Is the we get a shirt. Yeah. How bad is your portfolio that you're grifting? Did you put this Montclair yeah. stuff? 
onto like eBay after you got it? I was already wearing it. They sent me more. So I'm going to wear this hoodie is pretty cool. What can I say? I'm not going to wear stock hits three cents and all of a sudden you're grifting. Uh, hey, just for everyone <laughs> listening, I'm looking for a wardrobe Too upgrade. Soon? Okay, just send my package to my office. Let me tell you something. There's no upgrade that's going to help Freeberg. <laughs> I think you're fucked. No, I'm going to bring you guys Montclair shirts to the poker game tonight. Gee, thanks, Sax. Appreciate that. How did how did you guys even find out that he got this gift? We are at his Fleet Week party, and there was Blue a Angels. Some, uh, uh, Blue Angels party, and there was someone there who started telling me, like, did you hear that Sax got this whole thing? Oh, somebody, Montclair. there's a rat? <laughs> there was a rat. I'm not telling oh, you there's who it a rat. was, but He's someone got told a me. He's got a mole. Yeah. We were talking about the podcast. We were talking about Sax's hat. 100%, 100% it was Woolway. 100%. No, no, it wasn't Woolway. No. 100%. Was it Jeff? No, one, of my, one of my friends was in the man cave and he saw this like care package from Montclair and he really admired this like jacket. It was like a puffer jacket, but with like wool sleeves or something. Oh, so you gave it to him? And I gave it to him. He liked it you so gave, much. I'm like, I'm like, here, you take He's it. He's not even on the pod. He's not even on the pod. Give it to producer Nick. So he was walking around with it and he was really appreciative. So maybe he said something or, or what? No, I can't. No, believe this. The grift is crazy. Let's just say there was a lot of conversations going on about your care package, Sax. <laughs> well, and it makes us wonder, Sax, are there other care packages that have come in and uh, like, or have you been promoting other stuff on here? Say, so who makes the couch Some behind you? magazines that you wouldn't want to Chimot, read. how much of your Laura Piana have you actually paid for over the past year? That's a <laughs> great question here. 100%. Mm. I would never, I would never accept it for free. Oh. 100%. Mm. It's, oh. it's important. Look, wait, no, all joking aside. It's hard if you're running a clothing business, especially if you're like a small niche provider of stuff. So... Yeah, you have a responsibility to pay for this stuff, not to grift and get it for free. No, I know. You know? I, when I was at the Laura Piano store on 57th Street in Manhattan, the 18,000 square foot store, I was thinking the same thing. These poor people, how do they survive? <laughs> well, Laura Piano's <laughs> owned by LVMH. $270 so. square foot rent. <laughs> Maybe how are they Laura Piano, I would These take poor a purveyors, Friedberg. <laughs> Exploiting poor baby goats. Well, whatever. I mean, the fact is, the market's down. There's going to be a little grifting on the margins. It's understandable. Freeberg, he loves to produce every 17th episode and does a great job. Oh, no, I like um, to prepare or at least know what the heck we're going to talk about when we get together. And here are some prompts. He, he got these prompts because... Our producer not doing his job. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Producer. Oh, God. All right, so first up on uh, Freeberg's curiousness, this is... Uh, Freeberg... Right, this uh, is how you're going to do it. Let's skip ahead no, no. to the next section. Come on. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, so... Um, go, go, go. Why do you think, Chamath, people love the podcast? Why do you think they listen? Why do you think they love it? What, what is the, the phenomenon? What, what, what lightning has been captured in this bottle? First is I think that they appreciate our friendship. It's kind of like odd and quirky. And I think a lot of, you know, it maps to like relationships that they have amongst their own friends. So that's what makes it relatable. But the second is that all of us uniquely have a point of view about stuff that matters more and more in the world. I think that's just the basics of it. Like, it's not like technology is going away and it's not like its impact in the world is going away. And the more it becomes mainstream, the more it's important for a lot of folks to understand what's happening. And I think we provide a pretty unfiltered view of it. And we do it where, and this is a lot of credit to Sachs more than anyone else on the show, 
has to take a counterpoint and steel man what would otherwise be controversial views. And if he didn't have his three friends around him, that would make the pod meaningfully worse, I think. Can but you explain that, for people who don't know what steel manning is, what that means? Well, just it just means like to, in, to have intellectual honesty around a point of view and actually put your best foot forward and trying to explain it, even when it's not orthodox, even when it's not what the mainstream would say is right. And so what it actually does is it creates a contrast against every other alternative that you have to learn about things, which you find incrementally is biased. Hmm. And I think that's what we've gotten right. We are four friends that have a reasonable point of view rooted in some amount of success. And I think that that's important because it gives us credibility. And we take all sides of issues. Yeah. And oftentimes, it is not the obvious, simple, reductive answer. And I think that that's where um, it really shines. Just Go so ahead, people Jay. know about the steel man argument, I just want to make sure people are clear on it. I think most people refer to it as the act of presenting the other argument in the strongest way possible to be intellectually honest. Like the opposite yeah, the of straw man. Exactly. Opposite the opposite of straw man. Because the, the, way, the way the debate happens on Twitter and so forth is it's almost like the intellectual debate is uh, being attacked uh, using opposition research tactics, like it were a political campaign. So in other words, they go back through anything you might have said or written, take the, the, the thing that was most wrong or least justifiable or the thing they can even just take out of context, and then they'll try to make it about that as opposed to the argument you're actually making. And we just see this tactic over and over again. And it's not uh, an intellectually rigorous way of having a debate about something. You don't learn anything. Right. And deep down inside, you know that it's contrived. And that is the, in a nutshell, so it has, it almost in many ways has less to do with how good we are, but frankly, how bad all the alternatives are. So even if you wanted to learn about tech, and you go up and you sign up for these uh, newsletters, or if you look at some of these tech sites, they're really terrible. And they have done an increasingly terrible job over the last five years in telling the most important things, the truth and everything in between. And so if you can find a source for an hour a week, that is trying to tell you how basically the world is going to come together in a really integrated multifaceted way. It's not like we're right. And it's not like we know better than other people. In fact, many times, a lot of the criticism I get is, how dare you talk about X or how dare you talk about Y? Because it makes people who are experts in that field, you know, feel like, how dare you come into my realm and even have an opinion on, you know, uh, what Russian politics was like in the 1980s. And those things really annoy these folks because they feel that those opinions and that knowledge should be cordoned off and held tightly as this secret that only they are allowed to talk about into the world. And this is the point where with the internet, all this knowledge is accessible. So the value of that knowledge, in my opinion, is the least it's ever been. It's the interpretation that's valuable. And it's the ability to actually like think narratively around how all these things connect. And this is where I give a lot of credit. I think you guys do an incredible job. I think the way Friedbrook thinks is super unique. I think the way that Saxis thinks is unique. I think, J. Cal, your courage to basically fight back is very special. All of it together is a really unique recipe. It works. And what I will tell you consistently is the number of people that listen to this of import and influence, I am constantly shocked. And if you are not sure of it, you need to get out of this stupid little echo chamber of Silicon Valley, go to New York, go around the world, 
And if you're in the right meetings, it's incredible how folks are getting educated using this pod. And I think that's that's really amazing. Yeah, I Free do think I, I think there's like been a tendency in like what we call media today, historically kind of, you know, communication amongst humans. It it was very slow for a communication cycle to go from beginning to end to close because we had print and books and then telegraphs and then telephones and then television and then and radio. And the internet, I think, has really changed the cycle, um, the loop cycle to the point that, you know, a story iterates and proliferates very quickly. And a lot of people talk about the news cycle being very short nowadays. And what that means is that there is a group think approach to resolving to a point of view on what the news is. So the news comes out, everyone iterates on it, they form their point of view, and all of a sudden everyone's on the same point of view. And so there is no room for dissent or debate or discussion because the cycle closes so quickly and everyone coalesces around the same point of view. And nowadays, I think we see not just that unipolar behavior, but we see this bipolar behavior where everyone coalesces on their point of view and how their point of view is, is the opposite of the other side. And everyone has their own heuristic for what the other side is. There's this populism versus elitism siding. There's this red versus blue siding. There's this us versus them siding, US versus China siding. Everything is now bipolar. And so you very quickly coalesce around what your poll says and what your poll is instructing you to believe. And that is what is fundamentally wrong with how the system is working today. And I think what people find refreshing about a discourse that doesn't succumb to that bipolarity as a standard is that it provides people the ability to have a real rational, out of sync point of view that maybe changes one's point of view and changes one's mind in a meaningful way. And I think that's what's really missing today. And I think maybe sometimes we do a good job and we touch on that. And so that's what I would strive to do is to always try and avoid that bipolarity on everything. You know, the um, Zen Buddhists call it dualistic thinking, you know, <laughs> the human brain and generally the universe seems to evolve into this kind of dualism on everything. And it's not really always the case that there are shades of gray, that there um, is nuance, uh, that there is a complex uh, dimensionality to things that I think people really, if they take the time to understand, recognize that maybe it's not left and right, maybe it's not elite and populism, maybe it's not all black and white. And that's an important, hopefully, framing that maybe we can bring, bring, bring to light through, through our diagnosis of what's going on in things right now. Yeah, and I, I, I'd like to add to that. I think there's there's a ton of great journalism going out there. We see it. Um, there's a ton of great substacks out there. People go deep. There's other great podcasts out there. And Right now, it's a tumultuous time for media journalism and, and getting information and do what trust what sources do we actually trust? Who actually is thinking in a crisp way, um, and informing people and, you know, having been a former journalist, when we were journalists, we knew that we would get 10, 20, 30, 40% of a story, we would publish it. And we would try our best. Uh, but journalism has tr changed dramatically in the last 20 years. And I can tell you journalism is dead. Sorry. Okay. Just, well, I'm sorry. There, I'm there's sorry. still some great journalism occurring. It's on the margins. It, it, it's irrelevant. And I'll tell you why. Because the facts are known instantaneously on Twitter and through the internet. We don't need people to relay facts. We need people to wrap facts in context and allow us to come to our own conclusions. That's why I think journalism isn't what it used to be. That's why people who are historically journalists struggle because now they actually have to create context and narrative and have an opinion. But when you publish that into the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, 
it becomes very confusing. They don't know that that's what they were supposed to do. That's not what they used to do. That's not how Pulitzer Prizes were were historically given out. And that's why everybody then, you know, rants and well, rails about things kind of going is, you yeah. know, if you if you look at it, as journalists, people don't know this, but journalists are being compensated, their little salaries, in many cases are based on their follower counts, they're based on what audience they're bringing to the table. And you see this in Substack, Substack just said, we're going to hire the top journalists on who have the most followers on Twitter. But you have to change the and, word so that you change how people think about it. These people are not journalists. These people are opinion makers. Okay. In some cases, they're doing journalism. In some cases, no, they're, they're staying not. No, no. There are some cases where they're actually doing real journalism, Chamath. There are people doing investigative reporting still. It's not the majority of what you see, but it still exists. It, it's just a very much smaller percentage. But putting that aside, if you think about but how you can't, you can't account, wrap a virtuous blanket around every a thousand people because of the acts of one. I, I'm not. And I'm not. I said... There's a range here. It's a small percentage, but this there's what, still what random acts of great journalism. What do you think that percentage is? Of content creation, I put it at 5%. So, That's you know, one number. out of 20. I'm yeah. shocked. Yeah. But anyway, I, I think it's less than 1%. But let me just finish this one thought here. It, you know, if you are going to be hired and compensated, and we, we talk about systems here a lot. So just thinking from first principles, if you're a journalist, if you're a writer, opinion writer, whatever, you produce content for Wall Street Journal, for podcasts, etc. Today... Let this sink in. Your follower count is what your book advance is. It's what your compensation is. It's who hires you. Now, if that's the truth, and it's it's not all the time, but I think Which the majority is a proof of time, point uh, that your job is not to relay facts. We can get facts exactly. From a thousand that's where, let me finish my thought here. And so then, what happens is how is follower count on Twitter actually derived? How do you get that follower count by being tribal? And so what's happened is journalists have became tribal, they get big followings, they give spicy takes, they pick a side, and then their compensation follows it. And that's why New York Times said, can we all stop on Twitter? And they literally put an edict out. Then you look at this podcast. I think people look at us as, you know, in their mixture, podcasting long form, taking the time week after week to spend 90 minutes chopping these things up. I think that's what to the original question Freeberg you had is what people find so great. I, I when people ask me, I say it's really about the fact that there's a there's a friendships here and it's funny, but it's also informative and it's insightful. And at times, as you pointed out, Chamath, um, you know, random acts of bravery and taking positions that are not popular. And, the, and to think that you and Freeberg almost blew this up over a few hundred K. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, the two of you equally should wouldn't, share. I wouldn't, I wouldn't classify it that way. By the way, I think <laughs> the point here we the, go. Now the bad feelings are ready getting spicy. Just, uh, I have more of an ethical framework, but yeah, that's fine. Go ahead. Ooh, <laughs> <yeah>. Even worse. <laughs> Look at Chamath stirring the pot. Just to chime in on this point, I mean, I think I'm in violent agreement with you guys, but I'd frame it a little differently. I think the reason why people seek out our podcasts and other podcasts and Substacks is, and, and sort of this kind of independent journalism and are willing to pay for it, is because the mainstream media has become totally devoid of substance. It's as partisan and, ideolo and ideologized as it's ever been. Reporters are extremely ideological. You look at the New York Times, the Washington Post, the you know, major television networks, it's all kind of the same thing. And yeah, there is like, you know, a little bit of an echo chamber problem in terms of the partisan politics, but the mainstream media is the most ideologized it's ever been. I mean, just to give you one small example that we talked about in the pod, the, you know, we had two quarters of negative GDP growth, which the media has always considered to be the definition of recession. And then all of a sudden they said, no, we can't know what a recession is anymore 
because they know that'd be a horrible headline for Biden right before the midterm elections. That's more of a partisan version. I think on the, you know, a more ideological version would be just around this Ukraine war. I mean, it's just incredible how biased the coverage is. They don't even present the other side of the story, like let's call it the Mearsheimer take about how we got to this point that we're in. So the American people just aren't being informed at all. I, you know, it, we, we, we love to talk about how the people of all these other countries are being propagandized by their governments. We never talk about how propagandized the American people are. The media does not present the other side of the story at all on how we got into the Ukraine war and how we're now at the brink of what Biden calls Armageddon. Yeah. So how are we going to get out of it? How are we going to get out of it? Any topic, by the way. That that was my punch. There's so many topics that we see, you know, effectively short form and short form, meaning it can be presented in a soundbite or on a TikTok clip or in a couple paragraphs where someone's attention span before someone's attention span lapses out, always misses the dimensionality that got us to that point. And so there's one perspective, one point of view uh, on one dimension. And the dimension like Sachs is talking about, about the time and the history of the dynamics of all the countries and all the people and all the interactions that have happened for the past couple of decades that led up to this moment. But then this moment is taken in its context alone and reclassified as being something that is good versus evil. It completely misses the entire storyline of what happened. It's like going to the end of a fairy tale and saying, here's this moment of what happened and all the buildup and all the things that occurred are often missing and all the different sides of the story are missing. And I think that that's really what makes it so difficult today to feel like you can trust authority and that you can trust the the, the media that's presented to you as a consumer, not just in the US or in the West, but around the world, because there's so much that's left out and manipulated and kept away. And what people are waking up to is the fact, as Chamath points out, that so much of that information, the direct information is available now. And so this investigation, this ability to uncover the data and the storylines and the perspectives that are typically missing from one form of media is making people realize that there's so much that's being left out. The lie of omission. 100%. 100%. And I think in this podcast- that's what's really shocking to people nowadays. And I think that's what makes maybe to some degree our conversations a little more appealing. I'll, 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 I'll drop to you uh, in a second there, Sachs. But I did see this happen in three specific topics that we discussed here. Uh, if you remember, we talked about abortion. And we were on that topic very early. And no one wanted to talk. I remember when we started talking about the number of weeks, maybe how Europe looks at this. That wasn't part of the popular conversation. It was always just, are you against choice? Are you for killing babies? It, it was like a very two dimensional look at it. Immigration, same thing. Nobody would talk about the numbers. Nobody talked about recruitment. Nobody talked about the point systems used in other countries. It was almost like those basic things were not allowed to be discussed. Why can't the media discuss those nuances? And freedom of speech is, I think, the biggest one. And the search for truth. You know, nobody wants to talk about the fact that the ACLU used to actually protect unpopular speech. And unpopular speech is, you know, the hardest thing in the world to protect. But how did that become something we can't even talk about now? Right. And, and just the snap uh, silencing of any opinion, whether it's Chappelle or, you know, p- pick a topic in freedom of speech, Trump, et cetera. You know, who gets protection for freedom of speech? And we'll talk about it later in the news with Alex Jones, obviously, a very uh, controversial topic as well. Go ahead, Sachs. You want to add something to well, it? Well, I think just to take this Ukraine situation as an example, I think the media's biggest power is the power to define when time begins 
on an issue. So what especially if, yeah, well, mean? like right with Ukraine, we're part of an escalatory spiral that's been going on for well more than eight or nine months. This issue has been going on since 2000. Yeah. Over a decade. So in other words, if you come in, in like the seventh inning, okay. So to FreeWorks point, you come in at the end of the story and it's been an escalatory spiral, but the media just pretends like time begins on February 24th. Of course, you're going to have a certain kind of view on the subject. Whereas if you know the history of the situation, if you know that back in the 1990s, you had people like George Kennan, who was the architect of our Cold War containment policy. You had uh, William J. Perry, who was Bill Clinton's defense secretary. You had Henry Kissinger. You had John Mearsheimer, all warned that bringing NATO right up to Russia's front porch was extremely provocative to them, that they would see that as a provocation. It would eventually lead to a moment of crisis. When that moment of crisis finally came, you know, we're not told that this was predicted. We're told that anyone who says that this war has anything to do with NATO expansion is basically a Putin apologist and is spouting Putin talking points. All right. Let's not let's not let's save some of that for the Ukraine talk. We're going to talk but about my, my in the news section. Just, no, but listen, I get your point. You could, sure. you could agree or disagree with that take. But the point is, the media doesn't even portray it. They really just pick a side and they I think I like your analogy of like just coming in for the last 15 minutes of the game and just describing that, you know, we, you need to have a deeper discussion of how did we get here? How did we get here on immigration? Why don't we have a point system? Why do we look at people suddenly coming from south of the border differently than we did just 20 years ago? How did that become a politicized issue? What's the right solution here, especially if we can't hire people f- for basic jobs in the United States? Everybody wants to know this question. What, what's your fa- You have a favorite moment? Or a least favorite moment, a, a, a great moment in the show history, and, th- and then I guess we'll move on maybe to some audience questions here. But let's let's get this one because an embarrassing moment, your favorite moment, your least favorite moment, a, f- a moment now you look back on and you, you're you're particularly proud of. Chima. I love the cold opens. I, I think that they are uh, unbelievably human and funny and normalizing. They are by far the best part of the pod, in my opinion. <laughs> And yeah, that's my that's my absolute favorite part by by like miles and miles. Uh, Sachs, you got a favorite moment other than Ukraine, other than Ukraine. Probably I know you got you Ukraine started, on the brain. Probably you, when you started talking like Joe Pesci, the Joe <laughs> Pesci voice. <laughs> I can't do it on command. I'm not your monkey, Sachs. Don't you talk <laughs> to me like that. I'll get a fucking bat in here. <laughs> Uh, no, seriously, you have any other favorite moments um, or, or things you're particularly proud of, things that people tell you, you know, hey, I love what do you I love this part of the show. I'm also proud that we we were able to air our dirty laundry a little bit in public and still get over ourselves and our own egos. And we're still here. I think that takes a lot of courage and a little bit of a little bit of maturity. That's that's not in uh, public visibility all the time. In the media, so I like I, I like that sentiment a lot. I think there's a lot of pressure. Yeah, they were uncomfortable about it. You know, I I think there's a lot of personal growth that's going on here uh, for all for everybody involved. Yeah, a Freeberg, you got a favorite moment? Other, you know, uh, I don't or, like it when you and Sax fight. That's <laughs> just annoying. That's your least favorite I mean, moment when we are. Yeah, I just I, li- I literally turn I turn my headphones off and I like do some emailing. I, it's, it really happens. is just it, it really is just this political thing. But yeah, it does come up. I, you know, I don't like the fact all the that moments I've been interrupted by you that like that <laughs> just happened five seconds ago. Like you know, those are usually pretty tough. <laughs> go, go ahead, Frank. I don't know. No, I, what I what I did enjoy I did enjoy meeting people at the summit 
who shared that this has been like a really important thing for them to listen to. I, I think I, I was at a Pete's Coffee in the city and some guy came up to me. This was when early after uh, early when we were doing the podcast and he was like listening to you guys has really helped me get through COVID. And he was like locked in his apartment and he didn't have a lot of friends and he didn't have a lot of people to talk with. And just being able to hear through, you know, kind of a, a good conversation around when's this going to end? How's COVID going to, you know, what's going to change in the city and hearing our friendship really made a big difference for him. And it was actually really interesting. That was off the show, but it made me realize that the show actually is impactful and helpful and made, gave me kind of the energy to keep going, even though I've had uh, frustrations um, in the past. So I don't know. I, I like I like those moments a lot, to be honest. That there's real value here for people. I, I also I thought the summit was a lot of fun. I mean, I had a good time. Well, I, you know, it's uh, I, I think we're steering towards I think we're steering towards summit 2023. That was me stirring <laughs> the pot a little bit. I think as far as I'm concerned, you do it, you produce it or you hire a producer. I'll show done. up. I'm if you, I don't need to make a producer <laughs> fee. You can do it. You can take the producer fee, whatever it is. All right, guys, I got a couple of questions here from the audience. Do you guys uh, see this list? Yeah, Anything we got stand it. out you, for you guys. You, well, you pick, you pick. So here's a question. Um, we got it over email from Nathan. And Nathan said, we know the reasons, uh, the reason you guys started the pod. What is the motivation of each bestie to continue doing it every week? I ask myself that every week. <laughs> you, and both, <laughs> you and me both. You and me both. That's Sax's therapy. <laughs> it was, it was therapy you, yesterday. No, Why I mean, am I doing this? I'm thinking about taking a break. Not because I don't like doing it, but it is time consuming. And I do want time to get back to doing some business writing. I was on a pretty good track to publish a book about SaaS. Before we started doing the pod, I had written a lot of business blogs. And Whoa, this is kind of cut taking into that. a break. What, how, I don't know, how many weeks? Wait, 10 weeks? What are you thinking? Maybe like a month or something. Yeah. Oh, four weeks. Ah, we, you can maybe take that's no big weeks, deal. Maybe. I don't know. Four to 10. All right. There's, well, there's a, I've got like a right now. Brad Gershner like, is like doing jumping jacks in his backyard yeah. and put me in the game. Well, we could do that. I mean, I've got like five half written business blogs in my hopper that I really want to finish. And um, so I don't know. The show does take a lot of cognitive energy is what you're saying. It takes a lot of those yeah, cycles. Does it take right? a lot of your time each week, Sex? I mean, as you guys know, the taping is only a couple of hours, but then it's just keeping track of all the issues. And then, you know, if I'm preparing takes for this pod, I also turn some of those takes into articles. This is like this for is the Newsweek cost. or the American Conservative or whatever. So and I've been responding. A lot. And responding. And responding. And then I'm tweeting takes as I'm coming up with them. This now is my three point, days. which is, I think, the, the load for Sachs, because he is the most heterodox, is the heaviest. And this is like poorly understood. It's easy to just basically be on the side of the current conventional wisdom or to not have an opinion and to talk about things that are orthogonal. But David is consistently the one that wades into the middle of the ocean. And it is, it, I can, ex I can understand why you There's find an it exhausting. There. There's no, an because undertow. he, yeah. he, no, he gets dragged he, under. Yeah. No, Jason, that, he has to be more prepared than the rest of us. Yes. Because he is more open to the attacks from all of these nitwits. <laughs> It's he true. Just is. I mean, he just you know, is. On no, every I'm day on Twitter, I'm being told I'm are, Neville Chamberlain are, or blah, blah, blah. These are like uninformed <laughs> nitwits. You know, they're, the, they really the, cancer, the cancer of people who comment on Twitter is the following. They suffer from the worst kind of cancer, which is a lack of belief in themselves. And so what they do is they point to other people and try to convince yet more people to not believe in them. 
But that has nothing to do with anything. It's just misdirection from their core problem, which is they don't believe in themselves. And so, you know, David has to fight all of that stuff off, but he has to fight it off with logic, which must be exhausting. You know, my approach has just been to turn off comments and to not start. This is the single biggest problem, I think, with social media is it's at this heightened point where it's this virulent strain of a lack of belief in oneself that manifests in this hatred that you direct to anybody else that believes in mm, themselves. Interesting, con interesting theory. Yeah, and I would just, just to add to that, you know, it, it's not like I haven't heard any of the arguments that they're making. Oh. I guarantee you they have not heard the arguments I'm making, but, they, but I've heard all the arguments they're making. 100%. I'm totally familiar with 1938, Munich, Neville Chamberlain, all this kind of stuff. I just don't think that is the correct understanding of what's happening right now. I think the correct historical analogy is either 1914 with World War I and the blank check guarantee, or is 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis. The people on the other side generally don't understand that. They are just kind of part of this like Twitter mob who's buying into the current thing and whatever they're told by the media. So it, it, is, it is a little bit exhausting. I think that that's what people don't realize is, you know, you, when this thing got very popular, the two or three days after an episode comes out becomes your texts, your email, your DMs, and your replies become filled, especially Sachs, uh, again. I would, I would yeah. encourage you to keep doing this thing and just to turn off comments and don't yeah. look back. It's, yeah, hard I mean, for you, the, you, it's hard for the first few weeks and then you realize 99% of people who comment have nothing important or useful or interesting to say, like zero, like negative zero. And you forget replies, that, yeah. that there's like 99.999% of the world that just reads your content and couldn't even care about their comments. Yeah, and that's I a would good just point. I would focus it's on just, what you it, have it to say the point, and ignore though. and ignore yeah. all these other news. I, I agree that would make it less exhausting, but it would still be time consuming. I, there is a bunch of business blogs I want to get done. So, I mean, I said you take two weeks off, you come back and see how you feel. Right. I mean, you can do it week by week too. I mean, just take one week off and see it. See I how you'll see to catch up. I think you'll. I think you'll. And miss then you'll. Yeah, he'll, yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll be back. He'll be back. Of course, he'll be back. Great, great, great question from Nathan. Thank you for your participation, yes. Nathan. Um, next question. I actually like this one. I'm going to pull it out. It's an email question from Juan T. Oh, hey, Juan T. And, uh, Juan said, uh, Bill Gurley recently put out a piece explaining how this might be as good a time as in a decade to build a company. How are you guys seeing your own portfolio companies try to take advantage of this situation? And I guess I'll add, do you guys agree? And how do you think about this as a moment for company building? I could take that one. I am seeing a lot of the companies that were, you know, had done a great job raising around seed round series A, never got product market fit now wrap it up, right? They're, they're shutting down, they're doing the wind down process. And then we're seeing lists of very talented people. And I've talked about this before on the show, the consolidation of talent behind the winning ideas the, the the experiments that actually worked products that got some traction are now having an easier time hiring talent. And so to Bill's point, and he's got a lot more experience in this than the four of us put together is absolutely right. When you build in this down market, yeah, it's harder to raise money, of course. But talent is what makes great products. And products that delight customers get the flywheel going. And if you survive through this, and you have that talent, you're not going to face 20 copycats, and there's not 50 new products coming out a day, people have more time to actually engage and try a product, which they've been burnt out on and the peanut butter spreading, you know, we got this thin layer of peanut butter talent. Now it's getting consolidated in the winter. So absolutely a great time for five CEOs and founders or, you know, 10 founders across five companies to consolidate down to two 
do those tuck-in acquisitions and get focused and, and build really good teams and cut the weakest people on the teams. There's a lot of weak talent that have been overpaid and aren't actually contributing to these teams and they need to get cut and then you pull in the all-stars. It's a fantastic time. He's 100% right. All of the, if you look back in history since 2000, all of the best performing funds of all times were the ones that were formed right in the middle of the downturns, 03, 08, 09. These are the vintages that have always been the best. And what that means, it's a proxy for investing, which is it's the hardest time right now. It's when you have the shakiest hand when you're writing the check, but it'll probably be where all of the real money is made or the real generational wealth, both for the entrepreneurs who have the courage to start and the investors who have the courage to invest. There was a story that I heard in New York I was talking to a, a really well-known hedge fund or family office, and they were talking about how they were meeting with a CEO of a fintech unicorn, very well-known fintech unicorn. And they said they left the meeting and they said, this person had an unbelievable disrespect for money. And it was the most arrogant interaction that they had ever heard. And they said, under no circumstances would we invest in this guy in this company at any price and, you know, lo and behold, a year later, that company is now visibly going through a bunch of hiccups. And it just reminds me that, Jason, we've always had two problems when times are good. Problem number one is that there's never been a check and balance on that kind of behavior, a lack of respect for capital and, a, and a, almost a disregard for business models, which is just inexcusable. And I think it's partly the fault of a very young entrepreneur, but it's also partly the fault of a board who doesn't know how to direct that person. Enablement is real. Yeah. But then the second, the second thing is we've always had this, you know, this big tech put on the table where every time you would try to really hone in on running a lean, highly efficient organization, the alternative would be to go work at, you know, Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, where the terms are just completely different to what the experience was, you know, at a startup. And the bigger the gap, the harder it was for you to be able to hire and retain good people without just copying them. And now that that's also coming off the table, that is a key moment. So Gurley is 100% right. There is no longer the big tech put. Those are the generals that are about to get shot over the next 8 to 12 months, in my opinion, in the public markets, in terms of market cap and employment and perks. And then second is that these really thoughtful investors who felt pretty deeply disrespected will now be able to call the shots. And these founders will have to come back hat in hand and either apologize or just completely find a different religion. And I think in that you'll have um, a lot of amazing opportunities to build companies. I think it's well said. Sachs, what are you saying? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, look, when times are as frothy as they were, a lot of bad ideas get funded and there's a lot of bad behavior that occurs. Um, I don't think all of it's intentional. Some of it is just the lack of discipline that when capitalists is so freely available, people are building their businesses in ways that were optimizing solely for one variable, which was top line growth. They just weren't paying enough attention to gross margins or burn. And when you then have a downturn and capital is not so available, you have to build your business in a much more capital efficient way. And you can't create fake businesses where you're buying growth that's not um, economically justified, you know, where you've got negative unit economics around the growth. So I think that this downturn is going to create a shakeout. It's going to weed out bad ideas, bad practices, and, uh, and a lack of, of sort boards. of focus, bad boards and 
or, and, uh, or also and, and one trick or ponies. no boards <laughs> or allocators. Yeah. One trick ponies. You know, there's just a lot of one trick ponies out there who've optimized growth but don't have a real business, and yeah. it's going to require it's going to require entrepreneurs to to play sort of more like multi-variable calculus or math, not just single variable. It is extremely difficult to convert TVPI to DPI. You know, the value paper values into actual distributions, and that takes a skilled hand. And I think that a lot of young folks were hired into venture that fundamentally did not know what they were doing. They've neither ever built a company or helped build a company or actually learned how to generate returns. But they became very good at buying, you know, free call options on companies. You know, I remember like a lot of people, the way that you, these young people, I remember I heard a story that you would sell against Gurley, right? So let's just say you were trying to do a deal and Bill gives you a, a term sheet from Benchmark and you get, you know, somebody else. The young folks were like, oh, Bill's too negative and he doesn't get it. And they would try to convince these entrepreneurs that, you know, these rainy days don't happen. My experience with Gurley is he is the most sophisticated investor of our generation. And what I mean by that is, you know, he was trained as an equity analyst that really understood business models and cost of capital. And so in a moment like this, the way that Gurley would help you on a board is meaningfully more important than how some, you know, middling VP at some rando startup who's now a, you know, junior partner at a venture firm, because that person has literally no clue. And so these companies are going to go through a very difficult moment, which again is the reason why a good steady hand who knows what they're doing will make a ton of money in this next cycle. And for people who don't know TVPI, let me just give you a quick definition. This is the total value divided by the paid in capital. So total value is distributions like, hey, here's your Robinhood stock, here's your Uber stock, here's cash, plus the net asset value. What's that fancy word for the value of the uh, shares of the companies that haven't had an exit? And so you divide those two numbers, you get a ratio 1.5, 1.2, etc. Uh, but to Chamath's point, um, net asset value is debatable in some of these, right? And distributions are what matter. You can't you can't eat the uh, the IRR. You got you got to eat the uh, stuff that's been distributed. Yeah. All right, let's keep going. I've, I'll, I'll do one more. I'm going to skip over. Well, I'll just the 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 question on Twitter that got the most votes was what's the exact net worth of each bestie? Uh, I would make the case that that's probably not the best way to measure oneself. And, you know, I don't think we're going to do it. I also would argue that we're probably all exposed to a lot of fuzzy math with private assets that we own and in, in terms of companies we're invested in. So who cares? In. Like, how does that so, correlate with happiness in life? It doesn't. Right. So, so it doesn't really. Stupid question. Um, and I don't think it's a big focus in terms of objectives. Uh, I'll say the next uh, one that got a lot of votes, which I really like. It's a lagging indicator and a byproduct of what we do. There are moments when what we do reflects in value that frankly, where we are over earning. And then there are periods where what we do is under reflected and we are under earning. And so the through line has to be that you need to survive in both good times and bad times, which means you got to like what you're doing. And if you get caught up in a numerical number, there's all kinds of math you can do to make it look a lot bigger than it is. But it's all meaningless. Yeah, I would argue you're as, as long as you're actively developing yourself, over time, the weighing machine will do its job. Uh, Somebody I think told me in my 20s when I was at AOL, he said, you know, if you're, because at the time, I, you know, I grew up on welfare, I thought the goal was to make money. I didn't know any better. I've learned later that there's 
a lot more leading indicators of happiness and things cashmere, that actually cashmere, create, create yeah. happiness. White truffles. White truffles. Um, I was going to say friendship, my family, but yeah. Okay. No, friendship and family. Laughs. I, I define <laughs> it as laughs and friendships, you know. Friendships. But, uh, but, but he said to me, you know, your goal should be to just be in the upper few percent of your age bracket and just enjoy what you're doing. And he said, let time take care of everything else. Because as long as you find something you're, you know, you decently enjoy and are good at, you'll just get better and better at that thing. And then at some point, you know, you will lose track of what the, you know, measurement of that is because you're just too caught up in, in how much you enjoy doing the thing. And I thought that he had no idea what he was talking about. And now 25 years later, I can tell you he was totally right. Totally right. Yeah. By the way, this this was a question I was trying to skip over. So, no, but wait, just, it, it led to a good fork. Yeah. Okay. But what is happiness? Yeah. Yeah. I think after you know observing outcomes for twenty five years in tech, what I would say is that if you're smart, hardworking, don't have behaviors that sabotage yourself, and you know take intelligent risks, you will be successful in this business. I mean, technology is such a wind at your backs. It's such an engine of wealth creation. How can you not do well? But the exact magnitude of how well you do, I think is ultimately, it is substantially affected by timing. And, you know, like if you were employee, whatever number X at Google, you're going to do better than most founders, even of a unicorn company. And when you found your company, and then when you exit, what the market is doing, those things have a huge impact on the act on the magnitude. So, you know, whether you end up being, you know, a billionaire, a centimillionaire, you know, a decamillionaire, whatever you want, to, th those things are very affected by timing and chance, but not whether you're going to be successful at a substantial level. And so it just, you know, be smart, be hardworking, don't sabotage yourself, you know, get into tech and you will do well. And Trust the, the process. Of, Trust the, the process. The exact amount of how well you do will be dependent on some you know, stochastic factors, but not the fact that you're going to do well. We are enormous beneficiaries of having been born when we were, because we are a bunch of late 40 and early 50 somethings that in the prime of our career 42. in tech, um, the Federal Reserve took rates to zero. And we had no idea a priori how important that would be in all of our outcomes, but they were. And, and even more importantly, PCs, internet, and mobile happened. All of that hard work was done beforehand by an entire cohort of people that had to fight much stronger headwinds yep. than we had to fight. So, you know, David, I just want to build on that. Like, we were extraordinarily lucky. And so, don't get caught up in that because there's all these factors you don't, you cannot control. I'll say one more thing that I think is the most important observation I've made in terms of whatever it is, building wealth over time, is to make sure you're building equity uh, in yourself. If you're in a services business, and every day, and whether that's serving the clients of the company you work for, or just serving clients on behalf of yourself, and everything you do is a transaction, and that transaction doesn't build on itself, doesn't compound value in some way, then you're missing out on an opportunity. Every year that goes by that you're earning income, where you're not building equity, uh, is is a non-compounding year. And it's compounding equity value that I think ultimately pays off for you as an individual. And I can give a lot of examples of this, but if you're in a, a let's say, a, a brokerage business and you just do deals and you might make have a good year, you might have a bad year, the real question you need to ask yourself is, 
what is compounding? Are you growing a client base? Are you growing your skill set? Are you next year able to do more things or have more options than you had this year? And if the number of options you have is declining or is static every year, then you're limiting your equity value. And that ultimately will translate into limited wealth creation. Can I chime in on, on that point around equity? So yeah. when I discovered what equity was, this was when I was in law school. And actually, the guy who explained it to me was Antonio Gracias. A light bulb really went off for me because my dad is a doctor and I was on a path to becoming a lawyer. And in both those cases, you're a professional. The way you get paid is you more or less charge an hourly rate. And so the amount of money you can make is capped, right? Just take the number of hours in the day and in the week, multiply it by your rate, and that's the most money you can make in a year. And the difference between that and equity is with equity, you own a piece of a business and that business could be ultimately worth, you know, any amount. And so your equity could therefore be worth virtually any amount. And so you're uncapped. And so just, you know, if you want to have outside success, you have to have equity in something. I think that is exactly right. If you're just basically working for wages, you, even if you are the best at what you do and you get paid an insane hourly rate, you, again, you can be successful, but you're not going to be uncapped. And so that is the beauty. That's the beauty of Silicon Valley is all these companies offer equity to everybody. And it's not just shares in something. You can actually get equity and create leverage in your life in this era more than any human has ever had in any era prior because of software and computing and automation. You can create a website that prints cash for you every day if you wanted to. You can create a service that you get leverage out of. And there's equity value in that. Uh, and I think that's really key because then you can go build another one, another one, and you're building value over time. And that's just the, the most simplistic example of how technology today provides leverage that can really allow anyone uh, to pursue a path of equity. And, and, and I think you made a, a good point about what, what are you getting leverage off of? Yeah. So there's, there's a bunch of different things you can to, get leverage off. It used to be off. labor, right? <laughs> it's not right. anymore. So, so the yeah. old way was leverage off labor. And I guess if you were to own like a consulting firm, or like some sort of factory, then the more people you have working, the more money you'd make. The other way would be like, you can get leverage off capital, like a fund manager, or you can get leverage off of technology because software can basically create these super scaled outcomes. So you need to figure out like, what is it you're getting leverage off of? Yeah, I'll go. So I'll do the last one, which I, I thought was a really good question. And it got a lot of votes from Marcos Ortiz. If you had to start from scratch, no money, no connections, only the knowledge you have right now and a hundred bucks, what would you build in 2022? I would build something in energy transition or in life sciences. With a hundred dollars. Yeah. I would build a startup incubator venture fund of some type. A way to fund entrepreneurs and just be a capital allocator much earlier in my career. I would create a B2B software company that <laughs> actually I'm already creating it. So I haven't unveiled it yet, but there's something oh, I'm incubating right what? now. Go, whoa, David, go. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Where's the bet week? Wait, whoa, whoa, wait. Wet my you beak. wet your beak. What is going on here? I haven't, gotten the, I haven't gotten the subscription. Have you raised money? Sir? No, I have yes. not raised money yet. When I raise money, I have not money, gotten my subscription invest. documents, sir. It, it's, it, you can think of this idea as Yammer 2.0. So, Jake, you're not in because you criticize the Amber, but it was yeah. a joke. I gave you the, I let you win TechCrunch 50. Is, I put the fucking fix David, in for you. Is, David, just to put my pitch in, I ran Eamon ICQ, helped Facebook, was an investor in Yammer, was the for Series A investor in Slack. So I'm ready for you. 
Yeah, you were, there when, you were there for us when we needed you back at Yammer days, unlike J. Cal. So what are you talking about? Your wife came to Let my wife okay, and they were like, okay. Sachs has, in, Sachs has to win TechCrunch 50. Let me in, Sachs. Let me in. Let me in. When I do the round, you guys are in. Let me in. Let me in. Let me lead it. Let us do the pre-round round. We want to do the pre-round round. Pre-round. Pre-round. Thank you. Did you just agree on TV? Yes. Well, assuming, hold on, there's one thing you have to do, which is you've got to rip out Slack and use this instead. Yes, 100%. 100%. I will start the all-in community. I'm going to be very honest with you the day i left facebook i stopped <laughs> using it the day we sold we distributed slack stopped using it so don't worry about me i am right i am 100 percent aligned with you i'm all in i'm all in absolutely all right, all right let's, let's do the show let's do the show freeberg you didn't answer that question what would you do well actually i would get some water vaporizers and then i would get some molecules and i would make a new super protein that was made out of god sorry no, no, keep going. I, I like it. <laughs> I think it would be pitch? something with a protein slurry. You'd make some kind of steak that tastes protein better than steak. Slurry. It's, it's some sort I, I of would, protein. I, I would definitely build a business again. I think the, you know, the challenge is uh, as you move past that stage in your career where you know you have the willingness and the time to be hundred and twenty percent building one product every day. Uh, it's uh, it's really hard to go back to that. And I think if I was in a position again where I had no money and had no, I think that's the key part of the question, not the hundred dollar part. Yeah, I think I would go back to building something. I do think the intersection of life sciences with software creates this era of opportunity. It would probably be something in the realm of AI ML meets life sciences, uh, where you can actually work in a leveraged way with software to drive outcomes in these important markets. So uh, I would actually create Free, a robotic cat. Freeberg and I could have been co-founders. We can be yeah, we could have started something. Yeah, Maybe we can still. Oh, not too late. Not too late. Here we hey. go. The co-founders. Sachs, we'll let you in the pre-round if you let us in your pre-round. Okay, sounds good. There All we right. go. All right. Jake, you want to take us forward? Should we go forward? Okay, let's see what's on the docket. We've got Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You had Biden. Last week, saying we're facing the risk of Armageddon. How is that not the top story? Go, Saxy Poop. Go take it. All right, here we go. Let me just queue it up for uh, Sax. Biden last week said we're facing risk of Armageddon. That's your tee up. Okay, here we go. And All then, right. and then Leon Panetta just let's tee up, Jake. We don't need. Everyone knows what's going on. Then you well, have anyway. Leon Panetta. Leon Panetta just, who was the former Secretary of Defense and Director of Central Intelligence, wrote an op-ed for Politico saying that intelligence analysts have now. Uh, raised the probability of a use of a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine from one to five percent at the beginning of the war to twenty to twenty-five percent now is what he says. So, and I don't think he'd be saying that if this wasn't pretty much conventional wisdom in Washington. Now, I mean, Panetta is sort of a uh, very respectable figure in in the Beltway. And so Biden you have, said it right for the first time Biden two said, weeks ago. Biden yeah, said yeah. that we're facing the most dangerous situation and the highest risk of nuclear war since the Cuban Missile Crisis. He called it the risk of Armageddon. The problem is that nobody is willing to say what we should be doing differently to avoid this situation. So, you know, people are always attacking us for having a point of view on foreign policy. First of all, this affects us. I don't know why we're not allowed to have a point of view. But, you know, in, in our business thinking, where there's an existential issue, you have the attitude of drop everything and figure this out. If somebody told you that there's a 25% chance of your company blowing up, maybe in the next few weeks, 
you would drop everything and focus on that problem. But it's like, you know, after the Armageddon comments, it's like the media just passed over it. It's like, oh, this is like crazy Biden or whatever. It was minimized. It was contextualized. The White House walked it back. Nobody's really focusing on this and what we should be doing differently. And in fact, what Panetta recommends, and Petraeus said the same thing, is that if Russia uses attack nuke in Ukraine, then we should respond by attacking Russia directly. Now, if we do that, we are literally in World War III. And remember, at the beginning of the war, Biden was really clear that we weren't going to get directly involved. He vetoed the idea correctly of, of the no-fly zone, which would have required us to shoot down Russian planes. Biden, remember, he was asked in the press conference at the beginning of the war by Lester Holt. He said, Holt said, you know, Mr. President, what if Americans are trapped behind enemy lines in Ukraine? Would you send in American troops to go get them? Biden said no. I think very properly said no, because he said, listen, we do not want to risk World War III. But now, because of mission creep and a slippery slope, and we've all gotten more involved in this war, we've gotten more emotionally committed, you now have Panetta and Petraeus calling for us to directly attack Russia and get in World War III. The Russians almost certainly would respond with nuclear because that's all they've got. They don't have the conventional forces to stand up to us. So look at how close we have now gotten to the brink of a nuclear showdown. And has anybody reassessed? Is anyone calling for us to reevaluate? Because that's the conversation we should be having right now. And, and Freeberg, this brings up two points that I think you, you can comment on. Naval, uh, actually, the founder of AngelList, Angel Investor, and uh, just public thinker, I would say public intellectual. He came on to call in with the two of you and he, you know, outlined like who does get to have an opinion on Ukraine and, and other issues, which has dovetail with this, like who, who gets to be an expert in the world today. And of course, at the same time, not only Sachs has been commenting on, hey, what's the off ramp here? Elon has been talking about, hey, you know, how do we get out of this? Do we have some votes, uh, you know, by these uh, regions that have been annexed or that are in dispute? AOC now is getting criticized. I don't know if you saw people shouting her down at a public event today or yesterday that she's a warmonger and she won't speak out against war. How do you frame the public dialogue about this, Freeberg? And then do you see a potential off ramp here other than Putin leaves Russia, which is, I think, the public stance uh, by a lot of folks? You know, Putin can end this. He just has to leave Ukraine in order for this to end. So, two questions there for you, Freeberg. It's very hard to have good dialogue about any situation where an argument could be made on the grounds of morality in an absolute sense, making it really difficult to have a discourse around what the right thing to do is, because you don't agree fundamentally on the objective you're shooting for. One side says the objective is to preserve the integrity of democracy and the freedom of people. And the other side says the objective should be to secure the interests of the West and the United States and preserve the world from nuclear holocaust. I think that's what makes this a challenging conversation. The objective can be reframed. And then from that objective, each side can make their own case without being forced to take in the point of view of the other side. And it's why we're at a bit of a standstill and it's also why it's so easy to get swept up in a uh, mass point of view, uh, a coalesced point of view of the masses that makes one feel good about what may end up being a very bad situation. 
it feels good to say, I'm doing this for freedom of the people. I'm doing this to save lives. And at the end of the day, it may cause a nuclear war. And it's okay because I feel good going into this debate that this is the right thing. It's the morally superior thing to do. What's very hard is that we can't actually say as a group, our objective should be to preserve the integrity of democracies around the world to an extent. And that's a nuanced point of view. To an extent means I'm willing to preserve the democracies through certain actions, but I'm not willing to cross a certain line. And absolutism doesn't need to come into play. That's what I think is making this such a very difficult conversation. And it's why it's so hard to actually have a conversation around it. And it's really, I, I would argue, the most poignant and the most dramatic moment in what we talked about earlier, which is this deep-seated kind of, you know, bipolarity. And once you're sitting on your pole, you don't want to come off. And you don't realize that so much of the dialogue is in this middle and we have to come to some point of view that maybe this isn't about an absolute outcome. It's not absolutely going to be nuclear war. And it's not absolutely going to be the end of democracy. There's some conversation in the middle that's very difficult to have. And people that work somewhere in the world, hopefully, ambassadors, foreign policy people, State Department people, hopefully are having the more nuanced, critical conversation about how do we resolve to the maximal outcome that doesn't necessarily take us to an absolute end. Chamath, to, to that point, it's going to be an imperfect outcome here. I think this yeah. is much, much simpler than all of this. Leon Panetta is a senior counselor to uh, this defense contracting agency called Beacon Global Strategies, who works on behalf of Raytheon. I found that out while Friedberg was talking in a two-second Google search. I suspect that if you looked for Petraeus's conflicts of interest, you would find that through some Byzantine set of, you know, uh, strategic consulting organizations and whatnot, he also works on behalf of the defense industry. So you have these people who will generate more revenue and more profit if there is a massive war. And those people have been trying to push us into a land war in Europe since this whole thing started. Um, and so this is just yet another attempt. It's just the most final way of doing it. So I would just encourage people whenever you see all these folks clamoring for war um, is just to keep in mind that they are riddled with conflict and that you can find it out. Again, this information is sitting in plain sight on the internet and you can figure out whether this person is is really advocating a truth that makes sense or they're getting paid to shill um, a revenue generating mechanism for some part of the military industrial. Sachs, how much of this is people talking their book, their book being the military industrial complex in your mind? I think it's a big part of it. I think all of these Washington think tanks are funded by defense contractors. I think it's short-sighted, obviously, because if it leads to a nuclear war, there's and not going to be a defense industry. There won't be anything left. So, but look, I think that I think that Washington is wired for war in part because there's a huge lobby for it for all these defense contractors. And what's the lobby for peace? I mean, there's no one really arguing for peace. Speaking of this, Elon. <laughs> no, I, I'll tweeted. tell you. I'll tell you what's lobbying for peace. And I'm going to connect what may seem two disparate ideas together. But the single biggest thing I think that will prevent nuclear war is the inflation that we're feeling. And the reason is because it allows the Fed, in my opinion, for the first time really in the last 15 years, to act properly. And if they hold the line and they take interest rates to 4 or 
I think one non-obvious outcome of all of that is that it becomes extremely expensive, next to impossible, to finance military adventurism abroad. And that's a practical economic outcrop of really, you know, meaningfully high rates greater than zero. And so I actually think the reality is that for a lot of these governments, the more that inflation sticks around, the stickier it is, the higher rates are in general, the bigger the problems at home are, and the less prone they're going to be likely. I actually think that Wait, explains that explains the escalation of this rhetoric because people want to try to make this issue and put it on the table. But you understand that, you know, these folks don't say it's a 90% likelihood. They go from 1% to 25%, which if you understand probabilities is effectively a left tail risk that's effectively the same. And the reason they're trying to do it is they're trying to get it back, David, as you say, to timestamp it, to get it in front of people's perspectives to make it important in a moment where everybody increasingly, not just in the United States, but in the UK, in Europe, are looking internally and trying to figure out how to keep their economies in a reasonably functioning way and how to make sure that their financial and other infrastructure keeps working. So and you're that, saying- And that is not necessarily a priority when rates are zero, but when rates are 4%, I mean, just by the way, if you guys saw what happened today, it was the competing of two narratives this week. There was the financial narrative of the UK having to bail out their pension system, right? Of all of a sudden the pensions being forced sellers, of those forced sellers now, you know, uh, spilling into the United States debt markets around CLOs and collateralized loan obligations and junk debt, which then could theoretically spill as a contagion to other parts of the market. That was narrative one. And, and all of that, by the way, is a result of hiding inflation and the, you know, Fed moving up rates and, you know, other countries being forced to, to attack inflation with higher rates and creating all these dislocations. Narrative one. Versus narrative two, which is, hey, all of a sudden, we have to put the nuclear risk on the table. And if you actually saw the print that was spilled, the disproportionate amount of the rhetoric actually focused on the former narrative and not the latter. And so I think that that's why the these folks are escalating the rhetoric in order to kind of create an equality so that they get enough print they want of that version of the outcome. What you're saying is, you have the the world saying we can't afford to have this conflict. We are broke. Well, We've no, got too many I think, chaotic I think, issues. I think the, the world is saying we are increasingly under enormous domestic pressure, and as a result, we cannot spend on right. things abroad. We can't afford this. And well, then the other side saying, "Well, we need you to afford this, so nuclear is going to happen. There's going to be a nuclear no, no, annihilation." No, then there's a, then there's a small you strain. Pay more attention to there's this. A, there's a small strain of folks who would economically benefit. Yes. And who are now ratcheting up their rhetoric so that that second path becomes more and more on the table. What do you think of this Freeberg, this analysis that Shamath has? These two polar, uh, th these these two uh, groups vying for the attention and or budget of the world. The, the military industrial complex? Versus, yeah, uh, citizens saying our country can't afford this. We need to focus inward. Not citizens, the central banks. Okay, but I think the central banks influenced by citizens, right? Like this is a whole a system here we're talking about. People are, you know, watching their no, pensions I mean, like go I, away. They're I, watching I jobs get cut. If I was a betting man, I spent. The, I, I would guess that the next half a trillion to a trillion dollars that is spent in Western world economies will be to subsidize something that's broken internally inside of one of our countries, whether it's the UK pension system or whether it's the high yield credit markets, and it will not be to finance. 
military adventurism in Russia. People, uh, just to, just to hold, underscore hold on, that point. So there's an article today in the Washington Post about how the U.S. government's debt service is going to be around $570 billion this year, which is a 45% increase. Biden's budget for 2023 is only $1.6 trillion. So you're talking about something like over a third now of the official budget is already going to debt service. Because it's on variable, right? It's a variable, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Because so much of it is, is um, it's not locked in a long-term rate. So because interest rates have gone up so much, the debt service has gone up and interest rates are still going up. And so, you know, Druckenmiller had those points around how the debt services within a decade is going to eat up practically the whole federal uh, budget. So, Jamath is right that we've never really had to choose between guns and butter before in the past. It was just, let's just do both and we'll rack up more national debt. I do think there will be more and more pressure to question this type of spending and why we've already given Ukraine $80 billion in handouts when we can't afford to basically pay for you know, major entitlements at home. So I think there'll be more pressure. Now, I think I don't know if that pressure is going to come in time, though, to de-escalate this Ukraine it's not, war. It's not. And that's what concerns me. And just to, just to cut to the chase on this, I think where the rubber meets the road on Ukraine is Crimea. It's And why? Because the Russians have a major naval base there at Sevastopol. It's the home of the Black uh, Sea Fleet. And they will never give that up. They are willing to use nukes, I believe, to basically protect that asset. It's a vital interest of theirs. Hold on. 80% of the population of Crimea, they're Russian. And three quarters of them, according to polling that was done by Gallup and by a German polling firm, so not Russian polls, indicated that they see themselves as Russian and want to be part of Russia. So if we supported self-determination, we'd be fine with Crimea being part of Russia. But here's the rub. Ukrainian nationalism demands that every square inch of Crimea goes back to Ukraine and it is State Department policy right now that we will never recognize Crimea as being Russian, we'll never recognize the annexation, which happened back in 2014. So something's got to give here. Something's got to give. Either we have to sit down, Zelensky, and say to him, listen, you're not getting back Crimea. We're going to make that part of a peace deal. Or we are going to back the Ukrainians in their military effort to retake Crimea with the result that I think is quite likely that the Russians will be willing to use a tactical nuke to prevent their total defeat. So at some point, we're going to have to choose here, which of these outcomes do you want? Do you want to basically go for a negotiated settlement, which means telling the Ukrainians they cannot have everything they want? Or do you really want to risk a nuclear war to take back Crimea, which is Russian, and the people there see themselves as Russian? So we need to make a choice here. Yeah, yeah. So Elon put out a tweet for and, and got savage for it. And, and he outlined so, sort of what you're saying here. So do you think his plan, he said, redo elections of annexed regions under UN supervision, Russia leaves if that is the will of the people. And then he says Crimea, formerly part of Russia, as it's been since 1783, water supply to Crimea assured, as you're saying, Ukraine remains neutral. Should the West force Ukraine to accept these type of terms, essentially re uh, elections, and I don't know why Crimea wouldn't be part of that election process. Do you think UN supervised elections in those regions should occur and we should force Zelensky to do that. Sachs? He who pays the piper calls the tune. Of course, we need to have a point of view on how this war should be resolved. Should we when force we him to do that? that? Listen, it's not about force. They can fight on and do whatever they want well, as long as they want. Hold on. Without our support, American I'm weapons. Saying. That's what I just said. American weapons. If so they you want, think he should do that? We should pull the American if, weapons if, if he doesn't. Yeah. If 
Zelensky wants our weapons and support, which appear okay. to be infinite, we should not give him a blank check guarantee. The blank check is ha- is what started World War One. The German Kaiser gave Austria a blank check guarantee and it led to World War One. That is how great powers get pulled into the wars of minor powers. And we absolutely have to have a point of view on how we do not get pulled into this. And I think our one of our lines should be that we are not going to fund the Ukrainians in retaking Crimea. Got it. So just to put a to clear this so we can move on to the next topic, you're in support of removing our not giving further weapon support to the Ukraine. Unless they negotiate this. It's not yeah. going to come to that. We need to have a point of view on how but you this are in support of resolved. that stopping our support if they don't sit down and negotiate a settlement here. That's what you would do. America needs to have a point of view of what is in its own interest. What is in our interest is for this to get resolved diplomatically at some point through a negotiated settlement, not for it to escalate into a nuclear war that we could get pulled into. The only way that's going to happen, okay, is if Crimea goes back to Russia. I'm telling you, they will be willing to pull out all the stops. And by the way, they could even use tech nukes before Crimea. Can you answer the question, though, that I asked three times? Would you remove American support in weapons if they don't accept that? If Ukraine doesn't accept that, would you be comfortable taking away our support in weapons? I don't think it's going to come to that, but yes, we should be willing to threaten that. Okay, yes. that's it. I'm just trying to get you to answer that one they question. Are Let's- our cli- Hold on a second. They are a client state of the U.S. They Got do it. not call the shots. We're America. We call the shots. We're Got the it. big dog here. All right. That's the bottom line. All right. And you really want to get pulled into a nuclear war? Because I do not. I just wanted you to answer that one question. Something? We should pull we our weapons get real if they here. don't. Let's yeah. get real. Okay. This Got is it. about our future. You know, we are American nationalists. At least I am. I'm not a Ukrainian yeah. nationalist. I support self-rule. I think we accomplished something by preventing Kiev from getting toppled. But I want to support self-rule for the people of okay. Korea. It's time for a settlement in Saxon. Yeah. I think the most important thing that we can all be thankful for, which I think will prevent a lot of wars in the next 10 or 20 years is inflation and non-zero interest rates. It's just going to be really tough. Like, you know, for example, the UK cannot do anything right now other than make sure that they have foreign currency reserves to back up the pound, which they don't really have that much. They're going to need money to bail out their pension system. Whoever thought it was a good idea to allow pensions to run levered risk was, it's obviously insane. Could you imagine if it turned out that the teachers' pensions and the firefighters' pensions in America were running levered long? I mean, oh, they are. There were, they they're are. not. A, they're, this has they to get are. resolved now. You know, I mean, you know it's just we're at a breaking point. No. Yeah, it's clear. You know what a pension no, no, no. is? I know. I, I'm not trying some fancy. Only, yeah, it's just a no, dead no, no, instrument. No, no, no. I'm saying. That's I'm all saying, it is. I, I'm saying, don't use some fancy intellectual argument. I'm saying, practically speaking, the treasurer is not allowed to call Goldman Sachs and say, "I'm going to run two turns of leverage on this money." That is not allowed to happen in the United States. Okay. I get in some fancy way it could be thought of as levered long with, you know, all kinds of indirection. But that is not how the world works today, practically speaking. It is how the UK works. A treasurer in a UK pension system is allowed to call an investment bank and actually run levered. That is insane. Okay, so my point is, when rates are non-zero, all of that jig is up. Governments are forced to batten down the hatches and, you know, husband cash for God knows what will break in the system. And I think that that is, and, and, and as disruptive as that is, it may actually be the bulwark against war. The jig is up, folks. Uh, I mean, I think that's w- what we should take away from this is we can't afford this. And the United States is funding it. We have to force a settlement here. And it will be a profile. And that may be the silver lining of inflation. Okay, Andy Jassy's uh, had an all hands meeting. Amazon is freezing hiring for corporate roles in its retail business. Almost 90 VPs or higher level execs have left Amazon since 2021. 
Earlier this week, there was an all hands presentation and the slides were leaked to Business Insider. Some of them constraints, breed, resourcefulness, self sufficiency and innovation, there are no extra points for growing headcount, budget size or fixed expense The slide instructed employees to accomplish more with less sounds familiar sounds like something the US needs to do and foreign policy needs to do. Amazon leadership team urged employees to double down on frugality. Jassy also spoke in the meeting, just a couple of quotes, and then I'll get your thoughts, Chamath. It's on a lot of people's minds. And of course, none of us know for sure what's going to happen. But there are a lot of signs that point to this being a difficult and rough economy ahead of us. And I don't know how long that'll last. But I think it's one of the things that we are thinking about. And we decided that we're going to be more streamlined in how we expand in 2023 good companies that last a long period of time who are thinking about the long term always have this push and pull. Chamath, what do you read into this? I'll say uh, three quick things. One is that today, Thursday, October 13th, we had an inflation print, which was worse than expected. And the markets are materially higher, right? So, you know, strange. Why? Well, I, you know, we talked about this um, a few weeks ago. But, you know, my thought then and same is it's the same that I think now is that we've effectively seen the near term bottom and we're now consolidating. And so every opportunity people have to justify that most of the news is behind them, they take and they use that as a reason to buy. Okay, so that's number one, which is that we are sort of near the end. The second, however, is that if we do see another leg down, there is really only one cohort of company that hasn't been really whacked. And I'll summarize it very quickly by saying it's Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, and Google. That's it. Even Facebook has now been sort of put into the bucket of everybody else where, you know, we've been crushed 60, 70, 80% in those companies. So... So, so what does that mean? Well, those four companies are now being identified for what they may be, which in capitalism is called over-earning, okay? They are making more money than we think is appropriate. This letter from Andy Jassy is his way of effectively telling his major shareholders that he is now moving the business to become more of a cash cow business. Tim Cook made this incredible decision in 2016, 17, 18, that effectively did the same thing. That's when Buffett came in. That's when he established a huge ownership in the stock. That's when the stock absolutely ripped because it moved into a different bucket in people's minds. It became growth at a pretty reasonable price. And I think Andy is making the case that Amazon is going to become one of these GARP stocks, growth at a reasonable price. He's going to generate a ton of cash flow. He's going to keep expenses nominal. He's going to return a ton of cash to shareholders with buybacks. That's the reading in between the lines of that letter. I think it's a really profound statement and a very smart move because you haven't seen that letter or a version of that letter yet from Microsoft. And you started to see hints of that letter from Sundar, where he said, oh, you yes. know, it's, it's, and he's not, he's almost, saber rattling. He's yeah. not there yet. He's in the appetizer part. You know, he's yes. in the amuse bouche where he's like, oh, you know, yes. guys, you got to work harder. Hey, guys, let's create some fancy acronyms. <laughs> but Sundar's got courage. No, 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 but he's got courage. He I'm is going to rip the Band-Aid off too. And so I think what it means is these three and maybe these four companies are going to draw a hard line in the sand and say, we are not over-earning. Do not abandon this stock. That, again, will help put in a bottom in the stock market. What do you think, Freeberg? Uh, you worked at this company and, uh, you know, the, the, the principles uh, across the board, the saber rattling will turn into saber swinging uh, in Q4, Q1, you think? Google, Apple? 
cuts well, coming? Amazon is affected in a different way because they operate this physical supply chain business. They're delivering goods to people's homes that people are buying. So they're, they're, uh, they really have to uh, change their trajectory very quickly. It was incredible. You guys remember when COVID hit, you tried to place an order on Amazon, it was like three weeks to deliver because the infrastructure wasn't there to do it. So they actually were seeing more orders than their system had predicted. And they did massive build out. They hired what a million people or something uh, in their network uh, to meet demand. And then over the next year, uh, earnings went through the roof, uh, their infrastructure and employee headcount went through the roof. And now we're obviously coming back down the other side of a mountain. And they're having to shift uh, strategy and, and shift their operating model uh, yet again. There's a, a broader set, and that's because they're in the, the direct commerce business. Microsoft, Google, and other kind of software companies, some of which benefit from advertising, which is almost like a first derivative on the con consumer market, or a first derivative on the spending of companies that sell to consumers, have a little bit of a different calculus. They're a much higher margin business, 30% EBITDA kind of business with uh, EBITDA margin business with a very uh, distinct kind of set of challenges on how advertising revenue is going to be affected over the next couple of quarters and balancing that against their cloud platform, which is sold to enterprises and their media consumption platform, which is generally like YouTube at Google's case, which is less affected. So it's not as much of a direct calculus. I will say what's happened over the past decade, which we're now seeing change, is these companies have had extraordinary growth, uh, hiring people to no end. There's always been you know, kind of this extended expense on capital uh, on human capital. And that expense on human capital has driven the average cost per employee through the roof. And it's not just the salaries, it's the cost of the RSUs, it's the cost of the facilities and the free ice cream and the gyms and all the other stuff that's gone on to compete. That's now changing. And so it really is creating a different model for operating that hasn't existed for the last decade, where everything has been, you know, how many more things can we throw in the kitchen, you know, throw like the kitchen sink at this problem? to get all the human capital here. And I think that's really, you know, what's what's going to kind of structurally change in the Valley. It's not as acute as what Amazon is dealing with. It does feel like um, that is those are the last cities to fall, Chamath. They are the them. ones they are the ones that take the index to 3200. If we're going to try to do it, there's only one place to look you've whacked everybody else. Everything is down, you know, 50 to 90% in some cases. So well, and then finally, you know, and, and by the way, sorry, just just at the end of last year, a quarter of every S&P dollar was crowded in those names, a quarter. So you got to go there. Yeah, I mean, and also they're automatically bought, right? They're automatically bought by these index funds. And, and so who's at the wheel saying, we're not we're going to take the money out of them, right? Who who in their right mind is taking money out of Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft, where do you put it, I guess, is everybody's question, right? Chamath, like, if, if you take it out of there, where do you put it? Well, no, I think I think it's just that when when you have patterns of selling, typically, as I've seen it, uh, my experience is that initially it's the algorithms that really start to push a market in a direction. Then you have, you know, the more traditional fund complexes, that's the hedge funds and the long onlys, they follow suit. And then the last group tends to be retail. And it works in reverse the other way as well. And so, you know, obviously, there's exceptions to all of these, but as a general rule. So if retail starts bailing on Amazon, and well, they Amazon are right now and Apple, yeah, they 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 are sellers now. But so again, now time to buy it, right? But again, this is this is where sort of organized capital now 
is finding a bottom. Again, mm-hmm. like when you start to shake, just think about the psychology of like being delivered bad news after bad news. You go through the cycles, right? There's denial, there's anger, there's depression, there's bargaining. But then at some point, there's acceptance. And in that acceptance phase, you're like, yeah, you're right, things are bad. But when you see a market rally into a print like this, it's a it's really, really interesting psychological turning point. As a proof point to what you're saying, Sachs, uh, Chamath, and Sachs, I want to get your comment on this. Venture capital firms like Sequoia, Excel, and others that have now um, changed their status as, you know, just private companies, but also dabbling in public, are buying public equities, which basically means they see more opportunity in public underpriced tech stocks, growth stocks, etc, than they do in late stage private companies, correct? And you saw the Wall Street Journal story, I'm assuming, Sachs? Yeah, I saw that. What is what, what do you read? What's your read into that? Are they, is it overblown? Or is it indicative of something? I think it's probably overblown because Sequoia created that fund that is a hedge fund. And, and Andreessen Horowitz became a registered investment advisor, so they could buy public securities. So look, I don't think most venture funds are all of a sudden investing in public markets. We aren't even allowed to do that as far as I know, nor would we ever try to. So I think probably it's exactly. You have to give up Sachs your uh, VC exception, exemption, but you could do it. You yeah. could do it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we wouldn't want to, but it's kind of the point. But look, I can't explain why the market did what it did today. It could have, like Jamal said, it could have been some sort of algorithmic, you know, buying uh, or selling. Um, but I just think that the overall news today was the economic news was just another really bad report. I mean, just look at these headlines from the New York Times today. Okay, I'm going to read you the headlines on a single sort of scrolling page here. Number one, inflation came in much faster than expected. Bad news for the Fed. Takeaways from another painful inflation report. Three, disappointing inflation data keeps Democrats on defense ahead of midterm elections. Four, food prices climb again, weighing on household budgets. Five, rent inflation remain tepid, a troubling sign. Six, used car prices aren't declining as much as economists had hoped. Slow down, slow Seven, down. Give, give, give Freeberg a chance to take some Xanax. On. Take his Xanax, Freeberg. Yeah. Gas prices fall slightly, but overall energy costs are soon expected to rise. And eight, Retirees are getting an 8.7% Social Security cost of living raise the biggest in decades. I guess that one is sort of positive, but it's like literally negative headline after yeah, negative yeah, headline yeah, totally. in the New York Times. But can I reinterpret that for you? I think I think the way to think about it is this gives the Fed the resolve it needs. It's going to go by 75. It's probably going to go another 75. We're going to have rates by 4 to 450 to 5%, probably within Q1, which means if you're trying to figure out where the bottom is, it's mm. roughly now-ish. And so that's why you see smart money, mm. David, shaking this thing off um, and starting to enter the market. And so again, and the other version interpretation is when rates are four or 5%, the cost of servicing United States debt is so meaningful as a percentage of their budget, the incremental spend that they would need to make to enter a new war mm. is too much, I think. I love this point. I love this point. We're, 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 we're weaving all these things together. Do we yeah, want- Yeah, well, I mean, look, you, so-, so, so Right. So on the e- economics page of the New York Times, you, it's just disastrous headline after disastrous headline. Then you turn to the foreign policy page. You got Tom Friedman writing a column here saying we are suddenly taking on China and Russia at the same time. And Tom Friedman historically has been a huge hawk. And he is even saying he's saying pump the that, brakes. <laughs> yeah, pump on the brakes. Never fight Russia and China at the same time. Yeah. So he says we are in uncharted water, waters. I just hope these are not our new forever wars. It's like, whoa. So ba- basically, look, our economic base, our economy is crumbling at home at the same time that we are doing unprecedented saber rattling abroad. This does not compute. 
we we need I, to take a time out my, here. My prediction, no, no I agree with you, Iran. <laughs> but my my prediction is that we will not enter a new war with rates flexing up as aggressively love as it. they are. I love it. I love weaving these two stories together. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, we didn't have time for Alex Jones, uh, but we'll save that for another episode. Gentlemen, I think it's our best episode ever. It's an honor and a privilege to spend this hour or so with you every week. I love you like brothers. And it's been a great 100 episodes. I look forward to 100 more sacks. If you need a mental health break, talk to Friedberg's psychiatrist. <laughs> no, no, no. He's got him David, doped up. David, David will be back next Friday. I just want to say- off replies, David. Don't I, read your replies. Get off I, of that. I just want to say how much I love you guys. And I'm really proud of what we've created. And I'm really excited to get to the next hundred. And uh, I'll see you guys tonight. I'll break out the so white you, trouble. You, so we're all, we're, you want to keep going? That's the news today? I'm in for a hundy. I'm in for a hundy. I love you, Sachs. I will say that Jake House moderation's been a lot better since he got brigaded. That yeah, is his what? way of saying he'll be, he'll see you next Friday. See you. All right, <laughs> let's see you it's been a hundred episodes. I love you, Chamath. I love you, Freeberg. Let's you see guys. if we can get sax to do it it's been a hundred episodes he hasn't said it yet but i wait, love David's, you sax david's are you coming tonight saxy are you coming tonight? yeah i'll come i'll come you're coming oh wait 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 uh let me check i'll get back to you offline oh, jesus okay. christ god jesus all right but I'll hold try, on a I'll second try. hold on a second sax i love you let's see if we get him to you. say it okay Saxie i gotta, love you back at you that's two sax. going around the horn <laughs> back at you Freebird, can you say i love you too can you say David, i love I you see you i see you i love you what did you tell coolio Freeberg, i love you appreciate you Oh, oh you appreciate. Okay, Jamal, we got it. We got it back you. at you, and I appreciate you. You guys, that's a hundred, baby. You. That's a hundred. We'll see Jake you for uh, you. episode two. I love you too, Chamath. I'll you see guys. you tonight. Bye, bye. We'll let your winners ride. Rain Man, David Sachs. And I said we open source it to the fans, and they've just gone crazy with it. Love you, West Ice Queen of Kinwa. Wait, <laughs> <What? laughs> we need to get merch. I'm going all